Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, as we are continuing our series preaching through the book of Hebrews. Now, some have called uh, the book of Hebrews the Deuteronomy of the New Testament. I'm not sure if you've heard it called that before. Uh, maybe some of you have, maybe you sub- some of you haven't, but it's called the Deuteronomy of the New Testament. In fact, in some Bible reading plans, you'll, you'll read the books of Deuteronomy and Hebrews like together, and I think that's a great way to study them. Uh, but for those of you that haven't had your quiet time in the book of Deuteronomy recently, uh, which I understand that, uh, go read Deuteronomy, and what you'll find are a people who are on the brink of entering into the promised land after having had to wander through the wilderness for 40 years, okay? And now, now flash forward, think about the people, the original audience receiving the book of Hebrews. They are a part of the people of God as well. Jesus has risen and ascended into heaven, but between his ascension and between the year AD 70, you have about 40 years of kind of this wilderness, so to speak, for the church, And the reason that A.D. 70, the year A.D. 70 is a big year is because that's the year that God uses the Romans to bring destruction to the temple and Jerusalem and Christians. There's more persecution and they are scattered to invade the world, not with actual swords, but with God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so you have here in Deuteronomy, you have God's people on the brink of invading the promised land. And in the book of Hebrews, you have a group of Christians on the brink of invading the world with the gospel. All right, which just to catch you up on where we are now in the timeline, we are part of now the invasion where we find ourselves taking God's word, taking the gospel to the people. We are not to be conquering the nations, but we are to be discipling the nations and bringing them under Christ's rule and reign by proclaiming the gospel and calling people to repentance and faith. And so Hebrews is the Deuteronomy of the New Testament, so to speak, a people on the brink of invading the land that God promised them. But here in the book of Hebrews, here in the book of Hebrews, they are being warned to not repeat the same mistakes as their ancestors. All right. Remember, as we are traveling through the book of Hebrews, we're going to come across some strong warnings throughout Hebrews. And this morning we have arrived at another warning passage. Okay, this morning we are going to be warned of the deceitfulness of sin and how it can eventually lead to the sin of unbelief. But we will then learn how we as a community can battle against the the deceitfulness of sin together by looking to Christ, who we have been united to. Okay, so that's where we're going. We're going to receive a strong warning about the deceitfulness of sin, how it can lead to the sin of unbelief, but then we're going to be encouraged to see how, as a community, we can battle against the deceitfulness of sin together by looking to Jesus, who has united himself to us. All right, so let me me pray for us, and we will jump into Hebrews 3, verse 7. Father God, we do ask that you would make much of yourself this morning. We want to treasure and exalt you. We want to glorify you, and Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. Lord, where else can we go to hear the words of life and words of truth? And so we, we, we come before you this morning, God, expectant and ready to hear what you'd have for us to, to, to hear. But we ask for your help in this. Help, help me in my, uh, in my preaching. Help, 
Help everyone else in here as they hear and receive this. Holy Spirit, would you do a mighty work through this time? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews 3, verse 7. Here we go. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now let's stop there for a second. I promise I won't stop that frequently, all right? But let's stop there for a second because I love this. Don't miss this in verse 7. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. And our author then is going to go into quoting Psalm 95, which everyone with a a Jewish background would have been familiar with Psalm 95. It would often be the, the call to worship in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. They were all familiar with that psalm. So they would have been like, yeah, oh yeah, Psalm 95, the call to worship. But don't miss this truth that might seem so subtle to us. He does not say the psalmist says. He does not even say the call to worship says. He says the Holy Spirit says. Here in Scripture, we see another affirmation that God's Word was, yes, written and penned by humans, but it was breathed out and it was inspired by God. The Holy Spirit is ultimately saying these things. And then notice, he doesn't just say that the Holy Spirit once said or that the Holy Spirit had said this in the past. He says the Holy Spirit says, present tense, which cues us to realize that the Holy Spirit is still speaking today through Psalm 95. He has a word for you today from Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3. The Holy Spirit is still speaking today through all of the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says. Well, what is he saying? Look at verse 7. A quote from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Our author here is reminding them of the past generation of God's people who had been rescued from slavery in Egypt, but who were unable to enter into the promised land to enter and enjoy the full blessings that God would have for them. And they could not enter because of the sin of unbelief. Unbelief. It wasn't ultimately that they made a golden calf that kept them out of the promised land. It wasn't ultimately the breaking of the Ten Commandments, which they did often, that kept them out of the promised land. It was ultimately the sin of unbelief. And one of the more notable times of this unbelief was back in Exodus 17. And so if you do want to hold your spot in Hebrews, go ahead and flip back to Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, here we see God had been providing for the people time and time again, uh, but then they come to a place where there is no water, and they're thirsty. And instead of bringing their need before God and trusting in His provision, no, they grumble, they quarrel, they complain, they rebel, and now they're on the verge of stoning Moses. And Exodus 17, verse 2 says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? 
Moses then pleads with the Lord, and the Lord tells him to strike a rock with his staff, and water comes out of the rock, and we see God provide for his grumbling, quarreling, rebellious people by giving them water from the rock. And then skip down to verse 7, Exodus 17, verse 7. It says, And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now that name Massah means testing and Meribah means the rebellion or quarreling. And both of those names are used in Psalm 95. But when our author of Hebrews translates it, just uses the words testing and rebellion. But it should be triggering people's remind, uh, uh, memories back to that time in the wilderness where they were thirsty. God had provided them all these things. He had promised them all these things. But then they come to a dry land and they're thirsty. And instead of going to the Lord with their needs and trusting their, His provision, they grumble, they quarrel. They're ready to stone Moses and to pick a leader to take them back to Egypt. You see, their sin was deceiving them to think that slavery was going to be better for them than a land flowing with milk and honey. Right? This is what their sin was deceiving them. Sin is deceptive, all right? It was deceiving them to think that slavery back in Egypt was going to be better for them than the land flowing with milk and honey. And we see this continually happen in the wilderness up until the final straw, so to speak, in Numbers 14. When the 12 spies are sent out to spy out the land, and only two of them, only Joshua and Caleb, come back and are like, hey, if the Lord is with us, if this is what he's promised us, then like, we got this. But unfortunately, the other 10 are like, no, we can't take it. We don't got this. The people then grumble and quarrel once again, and they're ready to stone Moses and Aaron and pick another leader to go back to Egypt. And in Numbers 14, 11, we'll have on the screen, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And God at this point then is ready to, to wipe them out, but Moses intercedes for them, pointing to a greater intercessor to come, right, in Christ. And God relents and says, but this generation is not going to enter the land because of their unbelief. Unbelief. They'll not enter the land. Now you might be thinking, okay, that's all well and good, but what has that got to do with me? All right, flip back to Hebrews 3. Flip back to Hebrews 3, because Hebrews 3 verse 12 is going to say, it's got everything to do with you, right? This is very applicable to you. Paul, even when he writes to the Corinthians, he agrees. When he's speaking about the wilderness generation, in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6, he says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This is serving as an example for us. The original recipients of the New Testament, the original recipients of Hebrews, they were on the verge of invading the world for Christ, and yet many of them were tempted to go back to Judaism, to go back to paganism, to go back to whatever they were trusting and had their faith in before Christ. For being deceived to think that, that going back to whatever they, they followed before Christ would be better than following Christ 
on his mission into his world. And church, we do the same thing. We are constantly tempted to go back to slavery and sin in Egypt. We're tempted to not believe the promises of God and not really believe that they're really true. Like, we believe them for a while, but then we come to a land that seems a bit dry and we're a bit thirsty, and instead of trusting the Lord in that, we start to quarrel and grumble and rebel and want to go back. And we now live in a culture where we are surrounded by authors and speakers and influencers that are ready and willing to take us back to Egypt if only we would turn from Christ. And so what does the wilderness generation have to do with us? Look at Hebrews 3, verse 12. Here's our warning. Take care, brothers. Right? Be, be warned, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is a strong warning to a community of faith that we need to hear as well. All right? Unbelief will keep you from dwelling in and enjoying the presence of God for all of eternity. Unbelief will keep you from dwelling in and enjoying the presence of God for all eternity. We need to hear that warning this morning and to just let that sit. There's a weightiness to it, and that's okay. Now, does this mean that I believe a Christian can lose their salvation? No. I'll, I'll, I'll just show all my cards at the start, all right? I believe in the, the perseverance of the, of the saints, all right? But, but stick with me, because we need to talk about this for a second. Because, um, because even though, yes, I believe the saints will persevere, I do believe these warnings are real. All right, so, so some, some commentators, uh, some theologians want to say that these are just hypothetical warnings. Like, hey, don't let sin deceive you. Don't let it harden you, lest you fall away in unbelief. But hey, that's not going to happen. You're in the frozen chosen, right? You're, you're good. You prayed a prayer. You raised a hand. You walked an aisle. You got the get out of hell free card. Like, you're good. You just, you do you, right? And that's not what the Bible teaches, And here's where we need to understand, okay, as we come to Scripture, because throughout Hebrews, we're going to be warned time and time again. We get these real warnings, and yet at the same time, I would say there's plenty of passages in the New Testament that would affirm and seem to support the perseverance of the saints. And here's where we need to understand that there are more than just two groups of people that the Bible addresses, all right? There's more than just the the saved and the unsaved. We live, it's hard for us to get our minds around this because we live in such a binary culture, all right? One of my missionary friends in, in, in France noticed this as he's lived in France now for years. Like, France has, like, multiple political parties, and it's just, it's not as, you're not either this or that. Like, here, you're either this or that. 
right? You're either Republican or Democrat. You're either white or black. You're either uh, oppressed or oppressor, right? You're, you're either like this or that, right? It's just these two things. You have to pick one of the two, and most of the time, the two options are awful, and we don't want to pick either one, and we don't know what to do, and that's okay, right? There's more than just these two options, and so we, we come to these warning passages in Hebrews and think that there's only saved and unsaved people. There's, there's only regenerate or unregenerate people, and here's where we need to understand a third category, all right? There, there is a third category of people that the Bible will often address, and this is how all the passages about the perseverance of the saints can be true, and yet these warnings can be real if we understand that there are three categories of people that the Bible addresses, and these are the categories, all right? Number one, you have unbelievers outside of the community of faith. Number two, you have unbelievers inside the community of faith. And number three, you have believers in the community of faith. The author of Hebrews is writing to a community of faith. He's, he's writing to likely a small church plant, maybe like ours, maybe writing to a group of church plants in Rome. And like any other community of faith, it consists of both believers and unbelievers. The nation of Israel, wandering through the desert, consisted of believers and unbelievers. Uh, Romans, uh, when Paul, when writing to the Romans, Romans chapter 2, in verse 28, he writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. All right, there were believers and unbelievers in the Old Testament in the community of faith. The 12 spies that got sent out consisted of believers and unbelievers. You had two believers, you had 10 unbelievers, and it was only the true believers, Joshua and Caleb, who were allowed to enter into the promised land. The disciples of Jesus, that community of faith, consisted of believers and an unbeliever. And so too in the church. The community of faith in here this morning and gathered around our city and our state and our world likely consists of both believers and unbelievers. And therefore, warnings must be given. And they are real warnings. If you persist in unbelief, you will not dwell with God in his coming kingdom. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some of you who have experienced all the blessings of being a part of the community of faith. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you were blessed to grow up in a family that, that took you to church, and you've experienced some of those blessings, those temporal blessings of just being a part of a community of faith. But you still have an evil, unbelieving heart. You, you like the community. You like the, the, the love and the grace and the camaraderie that exists here. You've experienced some of the temporal blessings of God because of your involvement here. But at the end of the day, your sin has deceived you, hardened you, and if not repented of and turned from, is causing you to fall away from Christ into unbelief. 
Now, the sin of unbelief, let's, let's talk about this. We need to clarify what the sin of unbelief is. The sin of unbelief is not the same as having seasons of doubting your faith. It's not the same as having some doubts, all right? We all, in our Christian walk, we all have some times of doubt. We all have questions. We all have things we're struggling and working through. The sin of unbelief is not the same as having doubt. The sin of unbelief is also not the same as having a weak faith, Right, right. Our faith, it can fluctuate. There are years and there are seasons where our faith is strong. There are times when our faith is weak and feeble. The sin of unbelief is not having a weak faith. The sin of unbelief is not trusting God's promise. The sin of unbelief is not trusting God's promise. And most specifically for us in this, this, this church age, so to speak, right? The sin of unbelief is not trusting God's promise to give you eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief is not trusting God's promise to give you eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I'll get more specific here. Many church-going people, many, many unbelievers who make up communities of faith, and, and, and there, there are many, your sin of self-righteousness has deceived you, it has hardened you, it has caused you to trust more in yourself, to trust more in your faith, to trust more in your choices than you trust in Christ. You've, you've professed his name, but you've never preve- uh, possessed his presence, his indwelling spirit. You've never been given a new heart. You've never been united to him through faith. And so this warning is real. This is not a hypothetical warning. There are people sitting in churches today and probably maybe even in here, who will fall away into the sin of unbelief and prove that they were never truly one of us. And they'll say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, They would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I do believe Scripture teaches that a true believer will persevere to the end. But their persevering faith is not going to be what earns them their salvation. Their persevering faith will be evidence of their union with Christ. Their persevering faith, it's not earning them salvation. It is evidence of their union with Christ, right? We said this last week that their faith is not earning their keep. It is, however, the instrument by which God is keeping them. However, we haven't gotten to the comforting part of our passage yet. And so I I maybe am getting ahead of myself because I, I still want us to feel that weightiness of the warning. This is a real warning. This is a serious warning. This is a heavy, a heavy warning of the devastating reality of falling into unbelief. And so my question for this community of faith is, is this you? Are you in danger of falling into the sin of unbelief? 
Or are you trusting God's promise to give you eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Are you an unbeliever living amongst the community of faith and you've known for a while that just something isn't quite right? Listen, if that is you, we are so excited that you are here. And God loves you, and he loves to save self-righteous church-going people, of which I am one of them. And I, I, I really believe, church, so some people are called to, to, to preach the gospel in, in the jungles and, and in the Amazon, right? And, and praise God for that. Maybe someday that's what he'll call me to. But he also calls some people to go to the suburbs and preach the gospel to self-righteous, church-going, moralistic people. And, and I believe that the Lord is going to save many people here in Franklin from their self-righteousness and from their moralism so that they can praise God and give him all glory for their salvation. And so if that is you this morning, repent of your sin. Repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your church-goingness, if that's a word. And trust Christ today. All right, well, what, what do we do in light of this warning? What are we to do in light of this example of a community of people who were deceived by sin and fell into unbelief? And really, this is, uh, this is just a good life lesson. If you never know what to do next, go to the next verse. All right, go to the next verse. Hebrews 3, verse 13. Let's go to the next verse. Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, this is what a community who is battling against the deceitfulness of sin does. They exhort one another every day. Now, let's understand what exhort means, all right? To exhort someone means to encourage them. But, but it, it's a stronger word than what we think of encouragement, okay? So I'm not talking K-love, positive, encouraging, right? I, there's something different. Because when I think of encouraging someone, I think of like wrapping them up in a warm, fuzzy blanket, giving them some hot cocoa, snuggling maybe, butterflies fluttering around to gaze at. Like, to me, that's encouragement. But that's not what this word is talking about, okay? Exhortation is to strongly encourage. It is to admonish. And at times, this includes giving strong warnings. Exhort one another every day. Strongly encourage, admonish, urge one another, give strong warnings. And not only that, but this word, it comes from the Greek word periklesis, which means to call to one side, para, to come alongside of someone, okay? So biblical exhortation is not you out of a critical spirit taking a cheap shot at the church down the street, all right? That's not, that's not exhortation, okay? Exhorting someone means coming alongside someone in a relationship with them, to strongly encourage them and urge them towards Christ and his word. That, that, that is biblical exhortation, coming alongside someone. It, it oftentimes does include a warning, 
that the person is on a wayward path. Um, let, me, let me give you guys an example. When we were first starting, uh, when the first church first started about three years ago, uh, I would be on monthly Zoom calls. Uh, and and this, was, this was before 2020, so Zoom was still like, oh, it's, you know, it's kind of exciting. Uh, but uh, now even when you say it, it's just like, you cringe. But uh, I would be on monthly Zoom calls through our church planting network with about 10 other pastors around the country who were also planting. And then we had an older pastor who was kind of mentoring and discipling us through our first year of ministry. And, uh, and on one of these early calls, um, you know, I was hearing the other guys just talk about like all the ministries they were starting and all the classes they were teaching and all the documents for the church they were writing and getting into place. And I didn't even really at the time realize that this was happening in my heart. But but I started to just feel kind of uh, bad and maybe a little jealous because, right, I was working still at the hospital and working at the church. And I, I started to kind of feel sorry for myself, uh, which, which just for you guys to know, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty good at throwing parties, but unfortunately that includes pity parties as well. And if I ever am seeming to be inviting you to a pity party, uh, please do not come and please exhort me instead, okay? And so that's what happened. This older pastor, he called me up just one-on-one afterwards, and he's like, hey, Grant, you know, as you were sharing, I don't know if other guys were picking up on this, but it, it sort of seemed like there might have been a bit of, of bitterness there in your heart. Uh, he said it, it maybe seemed like there was maybe some jealousy towards the other guys or some ungratefulness for where God has you right now. Uh, and he was very gracious about it. He kind of said, I, am I reading this right? And I was like, oh, you know, I appreciate it. That doesn't sound like me. You're probably thinking of the other guy. Uh, why don't we pray for him? Because he seemed like he had some issues. Uh, but no, I, I did the Christian thing. I was like, all right, I'll I'll pray about it. Like, thank you. I, I don't know if I agree, but I'll, I'll pray about it, and we'll, we'll touch base. Um, so I go to pray about it, uh, because once you say you pray about it, then you feel convicted the whole day until you pray about it. So I prayed about it, and within like a minute or two, the Spirit's like, yes. And I'm like, okay. And I called him back, and I'm like, thank you. Like, it, it hurts. It hurts to hear that. Because I think, you know, I think really highly of myself sometimes. And so that's, that's humbling to hear that. But man, I was so grateful for that because I was able to confess that sin to God. I said, I confessed it to my, my brother. I said, please pray for me. I do not want that sin stewing in my heart. And what that, what that exhortation did was allow me to not be deceived by my sin. Because here's the thing about being deceived. Someone who is being deceived, by definition, is unaware of the fact that they are being deceived. Like when you are in the moment, if you realize you're being deceived, you're probably not being deceived. You guys following me, right? So in the moment, if you're being deceived, you are unaware of that, right? Eve was unaware of the serpent's deception until after the fact. No one currently being deceived is aware of it or else they wouldn't be getting deceived, but sin is deceptive, and we oftentimes find ourselves blind to it. We're unaware of the deceitfulness of sin. And not only that, but now sin is deceiving you by promising you things it can never deliver on. All right, sin does this. It makes promises that it cannot come through on. Sin tells you it's going to make your life better, and in the end, it only makes your life worse. 
Sin tells you that it will bring you more pleasure. And in the end, it only brings you more pain. Sin tells you that it will make your life feel more fulfilled, but afterwards you only feel more empty. And all the while that sin is deceiving you, it is hardening your heart towards God. It's causing you to not be as sensitive to his leading as you once were. It's hardening your heart and causing you to not have as much joy in the Lord as you once had. It's hardening your heart and causing you to love others less and yourself more. And it will cause believers to be ineffective and unfruitful. And it will cause unbelievers to persist in their unbelief. Sin tells us to go back to Egypt and to turn away from the promised land. It tells us to go back to our lusts and our greed and our selfishness and our jealousy, to our fits of anger and our drunkenness and our idolatry. It deceives us and tells us that Jesus isn't better, but that these things actually are. Sin is deceiving you. And oftentimes you don't even know it. Like, that's, that's humbling. Can we all just be a bit humbled and, and recognize the deceitfulness of sin, sin means that we are oftentimes being deceived and unaware of it. But thanks be to God. He's got some solutions for this problem. What, what's, what's one of the solutions that God has for this problem? I, I, want, you to, I want you to look around and, and, and see if you can see what one of the solutions might be. Yeah, are you guys, no one's really looking, but that's okay. All right, it's fine. I I understand. You've got good peripheral vision. That's fine. We are meant to battle the deceitfulness of sin together as a community. And this is one of the many reasons that we need one another. We all have blind spots. We all have ways that indwelling sin is still deceiving us. This is why God graciously has given us one another and instructed us to exhort one another daily. This is why we lead as a plurality of elders, because elders should understand that in isolation, they are prone to be deceived by sin. You can't lead by yourself if you understand you still have indwelling sin. But in community with other elders, you can battle the deceitfulness of sin and you can prevail. This is why uh, one of the many reasons believers across the globe, right, we congregate into local churches and we submit ourselves to one another and we submit ourselves to biblical church leadership Because we know in isolation, even in our families being isolated from other families, we are prone to being deceived by sin and we need the community of faith to do battle together. And church, we have to do this because sin deceives us and it hardens our heart and it's making us ineffective. And some hard hearts will never recover and they will fall into the sin of unbelief and they will not enter the promised land. Praise God for my brother who exhorted me that day. And he allowed me to confess my sin and to trust God. Church, exhort one another every day. Now, some of you are supernaturally gifted 
in exhortation, all right? Uh, It is one of the spiritual gifts, uh, Romans 12, the gift of exhortation. When you became a believer, when you received the Holy Spirit, you were supernaturally gifted with the gift of exhortation, right? Some of you, right, you're gifted in this. It just almost comes naturally to you. You see a lot of fruit from it. And praise God for those in our midst that have this spiritual gift. Now, for those of you that are not gifted at this, anything that's not a spiritual gift of yours probably needs to be a spiritual discipline, all right? And so you are not off the hook if you are not gifted in this area. This might be something that you need to develop and to help grow and be disciplined at because God's word does command you to exhort one another. This is not just like my uh, thoughts or my opinion. This is a command from God to exhort one another. However, let's be real, this can be misused. And many a people have been hurt by people unwisely using exhortation. So real quickly, in order for exhortation to be done in a healthy way, number one, it needs to come from a humble heart and not a proud heart. All right, before you go exhort someone, you you better spend some time in prayer and really check your own heart to see if this is coming out of a, 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 a critical spirit, a, a proud, kind of prideful arrogance, or if this is really coming out of a humble heart. Number two, before you exhort someone, you need to understand that it needs to be done in relationship with someone. All right, this is not just a cheap shot, like a drive-by kidney punch to someone. All right, this is not an email to the pastor as you leave angrily. All right, even though I love those, right? Uh, but this is not one of those. This is not, okay, maybe in your, maybe in your situation, like this is not you uh, not having the courage to exhort someone. So you going and talking to all the other believers in the church about that thing, right? Th- th- and gossiping about it. That's not exhortation. That is gossip, all right? In order to, 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 to biblically exhort someone, it also needs to be done for the other person's good and not for their harm, all right? So if there's any desire in you to kind of hurt someone or get them back, you just, you reel in that exhortation. It is not time, all right? Uh, it has to be done for the other person's good. And fourthly, it needs to be done patiently with a willingness to teach biblically. Okay, so number one, it has to be done from a humble heart. It needs to be done in relationship with someone. It needs to be done for the other person's good, and it needs to be done patiently with a willingness to teach biblically. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Uh, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, some of you who are prone to a critical spirit, like those three words are your, your life mission statement, okay? So hang on, all right? Hang on, I know you're excited. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. To exhort someone is to come alongside them and to be willing to patiently walk with them, to patiently teach them God's word, to patiently point them to Christ. And listen, this should not just be done by your pastors, although this is, this is a part of our role here, but this needs to be done by one another. A healthy church who is humbly and lovingly exhorting one another daily. Listen, if, if we took this seriously and you guys did this, like, I, I think you would probably, t- you know, save years of your pastor's life's expectancy, right? If this was happening and it didn't always have to wait till it got to us, right? Now, listen, biblical exhortation is not the best strategy for church growth. Let's just say it, okay? 
as a young church plant who we'd love to, we'd love to grow, this is not the best strategy for church growth. Because hard hearts oftentimes do not respond well to hard words. It, it does not all the time go well. But listen, it is the only strategy for church health. It's not a good strategy for church growth, but we have to do it for church health. We can't ignore this. We must fear hard hearts more than we fear hard words. We must fear the outcome of allowing someone to stay hard-hearted towards God more than we fear how our hard words might be received. The good soil hears hard words and they confess and they repent and they look to Christ and they bless the one who exhorted them. The bad soil hears hard words and they scoff and they, de they defend and they try to strike back and they pick up stones to stone and they find another leader who will lead them back to Egypt. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Church, this is not just a command, but it is, it is in fact a blessing, which God's commands typically are blessings as well. Having a few close friends or pastors who can exhort you is like putting multiple windows in the rooms of your heart and letting the light shine in and reveal things that were, you never even knew were there. And church, that is a blessing. So my question for you is, have you given people permission and the green light to exhort you? Have you done this? My, my, my call to you today is not to, to go out and exhort 10 people by the end of the day. That is not the call, all right? If you, that's what you're hearing, you're misreading this, okay? The, the, the call, though, you should go out from here and you should go give two or three people permission to exhort you. I mean, just, I'll make it simple, right? If it's someone in here, text them just green light. They'll know what it means. If they're not in here, you might need a little context in that text message, all right? But if they're in here, green light. Like, you've got the green light to exhort me, brother or sister. Because it would seem to me from this passage that it is vitally important to your spiritual life and health and maybe even your eternal destiny that you have a couple of brothers and sisters who are willing to exhort you. Exhort you. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Well, what should we be exhorting our brothers and sisters to do? And this is what we'll, this is what we'll close with, all right? What, we, what should we be exhorting them to do? Every situation is obviously going to be a little different and will call for different things, but ultimately we must exhort them to look to Christ. To look to Christ. You who've been bitten by the deceptive serpents in the wilderness, look to the one who has been lifted up on the cross. Right? Look to Christ. Trust Christ. Trust that Christ's ways are better than anything else in life and that your share in Christ is better than anything this world could offer you. So here's the comforting part of the warning to true believers, right? Because we all hear warnings. The unbeliever is confronted, but the believer is comforted because we both look to Christ, all right? So here's the comfort for the believer. Hebrews 3, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. 
Listen, church, our hope, our confidence, and the end goal of all exhortations is to point people to and remind them of the truth that by grace alone, through faith alone, we have come to share in Christ alone. To share in Christ means to be partakers of Christ, to be joined unto him, to be one spirit with him. It means to be united in him. And, O church, our union with Christ is such a beautiful and comforting truth. And it is this truth that we are going to celebrate as we participate in the Lord's Supper. And so, worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. But, church, this warning of the deceitfulness of sin and the sin of unbelief that can both confront the unbeliever and comfort the believer, it can do that because it's pointing to Christ. Okay, now, now, now hear me on this, church. Christ does not send you out into the wilderness for you to have to prove your faithfulness to him. No, he is the one who, after he was baptized, he went out into the wilderness in your place. And he did what the Israelites and what us failed to do because he stayed obedient to the Father in the wilderness for 40 days. He did not put him to the test, even though the enemy tried to get him to do so. He did not rebel against him, even though he he was tempted to do so. He was not deceived by the serpent as Eve was. And he continued this life of faithfulness and obedience, and he went to the cross and paid the penalty that our unbelief deserved. And he rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death, and now through faith in him, You who share in Christ, his victory in the wilderness has been shared with you. Through faith, his righteousness and obedience has been shared with you. His right standing with the Father has been shared with you. His death and resurrection has been shared with you. His life everlasting in the new heavens and new earth has been shared with you. And if you have come to share in Christ, then the elements that we're about ready to grab, the bread and the cup that you are about to hold in your hands, if you share in Christ, as you hold them in your hands, you will be reminded of the one who holds you in his. John 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Who is your trust in today? He's holding on to you. You've been united to him. You have come to share in Christ. Church, look to the one who is holding on to you. Don't put your faith in yourself or in your own self-righteousness. Look to Christ, the one who was faithful in the wilderness and has shared his victory with his people. Church, sin, sin deceives us. It hardens us. And it can eventually lead to unbelief. Therefore, we must battle the deceitfulness of sin together. Cling